Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Hey, Patrick here with a quick community and podcast announcement. You may have noticed we took a break from the show last week. Thank you for bearing with us. We were hosting the 2022 ELC Summit, which was an absolute blast. We had so many great speakers. There were tons of great community roundtable discussions that tackled really critical leadership topics. And to us, the event really encapsulated the best parts of our community, and that's the people and the willingness to share and support one another. So we wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who joined us. You helped make the summit great and we cannot wait for the next time that we bring everyone together. Coming up next, we'll be featuring some of the speaking sessions as podcast episodes over the next few weeks, starting next week. And if you missed out and you want to catch up on all the sessions, you can actually check out all of the videos from the summit at our new virtual home for the engineering leadership community. You can find that at elc.community. Check it out. Again, that's at elc.community. Now, this week is a special podcast takeover from our new series, Engineering Founders. I remember one person in particular saw our slide deck and said, literally, I wouldn't even give you a reference to somebody with this slide deck. It was so bad. <laughs> tough to hear, right? You know, very, very tough to hear, but was very, very valuable. I mean, it really honed our message, and it was precisely the thing we needed to hear to actually make our, our pitch a lot better. I actually, I didn't find it that tough to hear. I, I always presumptively assume that whatever I'm doing is awful. So to hear someone reflect it back, I'm like, yes, it is terrible. Tell us more. Give us the worst. I really, I love that, actually. <laughs> Hence where, why I'm always the optimistic one, and, and Brian always drives me back to reality. So yeah, you were, so, you were so wounded by it. I'm like, yeah, it's a terrible deck. <laughs> Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. In this episode, we deconstruct the early fundraising experience of our friends Brian Guthrie and Aaron Erickson, co-founders of OrgSpace. OrgSpace is a management ops platform for software teams that helps your leaders scale. And what OrgSpace does is they help you easily create team configurations, propose org charts, Visualize cost projections and create headcount plans so you can spend less time in spreadsheets and more time on humans. Brian formerly was VP of Engineering at Meetup, where he led the organization through their transition out of WeWork, and he's worked in software domains as diverse as agile coaching, music hosting, and pizza procurement. Aaron has spent 30 years working in leadership roles, most recently as VP of Engineering at New Relic. He spent a decade at ThoughtWorks, where he drove digital transformation via application of Agile and continuous delivery. They share reflections and insights from having recently closed their pre-seed round of funding, some of the early conversations as co-founders that shaped their relationship in the early days of OrgSpace. And they also talk about how to selectively screen advice, and they share their perspective on effectively communicating your vision to investors. This episode is also exciting because they just launched their beta. So if you want to learn more about OrgSpace and their platform or sign up for their beta, you can check them out at orgspace.io forward slash ELC. And we also have the link to that in our show notes as well. Enjoy our conversation with Aaron and Brian. Aaron, Brian, welcome. 
this is a really exciting time for for both of you at Orkspace. You just closed a round of funding, if that's right. We call it Series Pre-Seed. It's like they, they have this thing they do in VC now where they it used to be a Series A, then it was a seed, now it's a pre-seed. I think there might be even a thing called a pre-pre-pre-seed someday that's also there. But yeah, raise sizes have have increased a little bit. We have, I think, what would have been characterized as a large pre-seed in the before times. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the big moment for Orgspace. Thanks. We're we're excited. I mean, we only really got going with this in call it April or May of, of last year of 2021. So it hasn't been that long. And it's going to be a long journey, right? We're very, very early on in, in the step forward here. But we were really thrilled to be able to get some support, even in that early stage, to get some oxygen into the thing and help keep us going. I'm a dad, right? I have a family. And an important component for me, I'm a little older than some founders, right? An important component for me was being able to go back to my partner and, and my folks and say uh, that what we're doing is sustainable and that we'll be able to to provide. And so that's been, I think, a, a critical component of it for me. The other nice thing about it is that it forces you through a process of validating the product, validating the business, right? You end up talking to a lot of interesting people and getting good feedback. I, I would actually say it was a really positive experience on the whole. And I, I feel like I, I, even though it was often frustrating in terms of rejections, we learned a lot from it. It was valuable in the end. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I would add to that is like, absolutely. I think there's a couple downsides and upsides, right? I have a lot of admiration for people that bootstrap their companies. You know, oh, the, yeah. the best kind of funding you could ever get is revenue. You don't give up any equity when you just fund off revenue, and it's great that way. But it's also really challenging to do that. And I think for some kinds of business models where it is a race to you know win the land grab, that could actually be a disadvantage because somebody else that's much better funded could obviously hire many more engineers, support many, you know, grew up a few times and still, you know, survive. So there's that dynamic as well. So I'm really glad we went through the process and it was really gratifying. Though, as I would say, along with Brian, there, there was probably the first six weeks where you're not getting phone calls back and nobody answers your email. And yeah. You start to question your sanity a little bit. But if you can fight through it, it works out really well. That reminds me in the early days of building our community. It's just a lot of hassle to go out to ask people to, do you want to share something? Come join as a speaker or uh, convince the other side of the equation, like getting people in. But once you get through those, things become becoming easier. That's a very pivotal, very important moment. We have a lot of questions for you about bootstrapping versus raising and also about like the experience of ghosting and how to get through that experience. But I think, first off, I was wondering if we could zoom out and go back to the beginning and more of the origin story. And so I think just for some context, both of you prior to this were or are engineering leaders, Brian most recently as VPE at Meetup, and Aaron as VP at New Relic before you decided to take this plunge together. So Brian, I was hoping we'd start with you and bring us back to the beginning of OrgSpace and tell us a little more about that. And I guess you've also co-founded companies a couple of times before. So how have those experiences also shaped the beginning phase of OrgSpace? Well, I tried bootstrapping and it didn't go well. So answer that one up front. <laughs> Let's dial back maybe to a year and a half ago. So I took over as VPE at Meetup during a really turbulent time for the company and a really emotionally wrenching one for a lot of folks as well. We had just received news that WeWork was in the process of imploding in on itself and was as part of that going to divest itself of all of its acquisitions of which Meetup was one. And one of the first things I had to do in that leadership role was help lead us through a round of really significant layoffs within the software organization, which, you know, Meetup had built up a really special, I think, community, a really special vibe within its its software organization. Huge credit to former CTO Yvette Pasqua, I think, for driving that. And layoffs are always a difficult time, but I think in particular, it was really 
a difficult thing to try to manage people through and make business decisions around how to move forward. And it struck me during that period that for large organizational shifts, the tools that I was using for those shifts were ad hoc, I think is the term that I would use, right? And I think this is echoed in the experiences of a lot of leaders, that a lot of this stuff just happens in spreadsheets. You have a name of, of uh, you have a spreadsheet full of names, and you're shifting the names around, or maybe there's a mirror board, or, you know, in the before times, there was a boards of stickies and things, right, in the, the pre-COVID era. And that was really underscored for me again when COVID hit, which forced another difficult organizational change on us. And then subsequently, a lot of attrition from folks who were frustrated by that process, I think, very understandably. And I walked out of that saying, I've I've had enough. I don't want to be in this particular role in this particular place anymore. Love the mission of the company, love what they're trying to do, ton of respect for the folks there. But leading that organization during that time was really emotionally difficult on everyone. And I did not find myself waking up every day and sparking, sparking joy in my career. So I decided I wanted to, to back out of that role and, and try something else. And I'd been thinking for a long time about what the next thing was. And I, I think there's a great observation from Patrick McKenzie, Petty 11, I think he's known, which is that every spreadsheet is sort of a SaaS business waiting to happen. And it, it occurred to, to me as a starting point that maybe the spreadsheet that I was using to structure my engineering organization was a starting point. So I as was, a, was a potential business. So I started, I started wandering through my Rolodex, right? I, I called around to folks that I respected, that I'd worked with before, that I had a, a connection with. And, and one of those folks was Aaron. I knew that he had taken on this role at New Relic. He and I'd connected a couple months prior just to kind of swap context and commiserate and, and get a sense of what was going on. So I called up Aaron. And I said, you know, hey, uh, dumb idea. I'm thinking about this thing. What do you think? And I think Aaron took to it like a house on fire. He was, <laughs> I think, likewise searching for something and immediately understood where he was coming from, but also was able to take that and bring a ton of original ideas to the concept, right? Immediately could think of a half dozen other directions that he wanted to tug it and ways in which we could collaborate to move it forward. That has proven so far, I mean, it's again, it's early days, right? But so far it's proven to be a really fruitful collaboration. My, my prior experience at startups had been that Finding good partners and keeping them together was the hardest part. Finding people who trust each other, who can rely on each other, who who all bring something special to the table, it's really, really, really tough finding those people. And I feel very lucky that Aaron and I vibed so early and, and were able to get something going, which isn't to say that it's always been easier, that we haven't had arguments or, or disputes from time to time. But, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we may we may ask a follow-up question yet. about that. I think that's great. Yeah. Aaron, bring us into your perspective. I mean, like this is, yeah. like, I think it's such a powerful insight from Brian, some of those early experiences, and then your initial inspiration and expansion of the idea. Bring us into that moment. What was your perspective with all of this going on? Yeah, so I had been at Salesforce for, you know, a, a pretty long time. I, I'd taken on the VPN role at New Relic, but at the end of the day, I realized for me to be good at my job, I need to be passionate about the problem I'm solving. And it was very clear to me when Brian was talking about what he was thinking about doing. And I compared that with my passion about APM and you know that domain. It's a great domain. I love that domain. And we use tools to do that. I looked at the comparative levels of like how much I care about one or the other. And it became very clear to me that this is something I need to do. I need to do this with Brian. I need to... I hope we get to, you know, invent what everybody will use for how they run their engineering organizations because kind of just our backgrounds coming from ThoughtWorks and kind of caring about the human-centered organizations that we, you know, want to run, we want to share that with everybody. So that was kind of what really kind of made the decision for me. 
to jump out of the big corporate world and jump into the, let's be a company of two people and see what the heck we can build. A lot of my background prior to that, so I'd been a senior director of product at Salesforce and I've kind of gone between the two roles. But one of the insights I also had was if you want to build your own products, you're probably going to do that in either a very early stage company or a startup or your own startup and you found something. For no other reason, when you're in a very large company, to move the needle in a significant way, you could come up with a great idea that's going to generate a million of ARR that does not matter when you are a billion dollar company. Nobody cares for good reason, right? You need to move the needle this much and your idea initially is only going to move it this much until you develop a new market. So the bias is a against new ideas in most larger companies. I, at least that's my experience. Starting to talk to Brian, so we get together, we start working, and I'm just swimming with ideas. Every morning I wake up with like five, six, seven different things we could do. And I think one of the first things that Brian had to bonk me on the head over was probably after the sixth or seventh day of me just, and we can do this and we can do this. And he's like, Aaron, dude, you need to focus because we can't do nine things with two people and uh, only one of us is programming right now. So I eventually started getting back my programming chops, but that was certainly in the experience for me. So the kind of the thing I wanted to do in addition to what Brian was doing was we had this kind of org model with drafts for being able to kind of communicate about what alternate org models you might want to have. My thought was let's bring some data in context so that when you're making the decision on what organization changes you want to make, you can easily understand what are people's team histories as they're moving around? What are people's tenures as they're moving around? You know, all these other kind of data points you would use when you're in the place of making those decisions. So, you know, that was kind of the bringing the analytics angle was where I've kind of specialized within the company. And then also just my background, you know, I have business development in my background. I mean, I kind of feel like I've been a jack of all trades, master of none most of my career. And so that's kind of why I took on the role as kind of more of the business side, but we're both engineers, both code on the product. And it's been just really fun going back to that kind of role as well, at least for a little while. I want to bring back to that initial conversation. I'm curious to know, because funding co-founders, that's a critical thing to have and then done right in the early days. How did the conference pan out? Like, probably you guys were planning to talk for half an hour, but it went on for much longer. But what happens afterwards that get to the point where officially you're co-creating this company? A lot of other people in the in the community are thinking about their ideas. So they they need help to navigate so that early conversations yeah. with potential co-founders. I mean, I I think as with any difficult thing, it's important to define a goal for yourself and the criteria that are that you're using to understand what will fit it, and then jump off from there. And I I had approached uh, a couple of other people's potential co-founders prior because I find that for myself, I work better with another person. And for whatever reason, couldn't quite find the right fit. It wasn't the right time for them financially. They weren't in a place in their life where they felt like they, they could make a big shift, whatever. And I, I thought it was really important to find someone who's coming at this from a similar sort of life experience in software leadership as me. And, you know, thankfully, and one of the fun things about working on this product is that because it's geared towards software leaders, if you are one, you end up meeting a lot of those folks, right? And so I think there's always a component of luck in these things. But I, I was pretty sure that I had a set of criteria that I was looking for. I needed someone who was trustworthy and collaborative. You know, one thing I love about Aaron is that he's he's, he's more cheerful and more enthusiastic than I am. I'm sort of the glum one here. That I thought ticked a really important box for me, right, that we would have that, that dynamic to play off of. So I think we probably collaborated together for, in my memory, it was three or four weeks before we both kind of said, let's tie the knot, right? We bounced some ideas around. We wrote a little bit of code. We, we talked about what we wanted for the future of the company. And when we felt like our, our visions were sufficiently aligned and we had our, our ducks in a row, we sort of said, let's do this, right? And I, I think that was another thing that was really 
that we really lucked out with is that we both had similar visions for the way we wanted to approach it and, and, and what we wanted to do from whatever, an incorporation standpoint, and a management standpoint, whatever. I think that, that that was a happy accident. But at, at any point, if it hadn't worked out, I, I had given myself in that moment a budget of two months. I went back to my wife and I said, if I, if I can't get this thing credibly to an interesting place in that amount of time, I promise I'll back out. I'll, I'll go find a, a, a real job somewhere else. And so I was sort of down to the wire on that stuff, but I, I really felt like we had something. And so it was, it was, it was at that moment, I think that we sort of went with it. I really appreciated the idea of giving yourself a budget of time or, or runway to sort of work out a problem. Cause I'm also thinking of what if somebody is, is experimenting and testing a company idea and it doesn't work out. I, I think that a framework is really powerful. For both of you, are there other conversations you would encourage people to have with a potential co-founder to ensure that people are on the same page? Like, I guess, are there other conversations that you had with each other that really helped calibrate your frame of thinking, getting aligned on expectations in the vision that you would say, this is a must-have conversation at the beginning of this period? I think I had a set of questions that I wanted to cover, if that's useful. <laughs> oh, God. I think the first question on my list, I don't know if I ever shared the whole list with you, Aaron, but the first question I had on the list was, how have you dealt in the past with a colleague who's underperforming but that you can't fire? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know, what's a time you haven't responded well when someone gave you feedback on something you cared about? I think these things get really emotional and passions run high and it's important to be able to absorb those things. And then I, there was broader stuff I, I wanted. Uh, I wanted to understand how you were approaching and thinking about your role in the broader community, how you think companies should operate more generally, what role does a tech company play in the wider ecosystem, what obligations does it have to the people and the actors in that system, what's an example of a potential customer that you'd consider unacceptable to take on? Is there anyone you would bar from the, the platform and why? And my answer is, <laughs> yes, there are clients I'd be reluctant to work with, I think. But what habits do you think will serve you well? Which habits do you think you'll have to break? I think that's an important part of getting someone to think in advance about this stuff. Oh, and then I think my final one was, let's stipulate for a minute that we've both been around the band a little bit. We care about a work-life balance. But if something had to give, what would it be? What would give? And there you have it. Those are my, those are the things I was thinking about in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing about when you're in a startup that's really small is, especially when it was just Brian and I, and I, I kind of had a metric I was shooting for, which was, so Brian, his spouse was pregnant when we got together. And I put a line in my head, which was get funded before a uh, baby arrives. That was my metric I'd made for myself, get funded before baby arrives. And I was starting to get a little nervous in, in July because I knew we had about four more months <laughs> at that time, according to at least my math at the time. So it was, okay, how do we make that happen? But also in terms of the co-founder stuff, just kind of having, I mean, this, everybody knows, this is almost kind of trite to say, but complementary skill sets. I saw the, the opportunity, like every person that wants to be a co-founder and lead, you know, the business from a product standpoint needs a good technical co-founder. And Brian is one of the best technical people I've known in my career over 30 years. And so to me, it was, holy hell, yeah, you got to work with this guy. This is a, an amazing chance. But also just somebody whose working style is compatible, somebody who has emotional resilience, somebody that will not overreact or underreact when issues do arise and has that kind of almost like stoic or stoic, I'm not sure if that's the right nature about how they go through things. And that, you know, that, that's been really helpful as well, particularly because this is a ride. This is an emotionally draining ride, particularly when, you know, you get your idea gets rejected from three or four different VCs and you start to wonder, is this thing really going to work? And yeah, you need to be able to ride that out. 
It's one thing that struck me, you know, when I was in my role through a meetup during the start and then through the, the middle of the, or whatever era we're in right now, the COVID pandemic, that the, the people who did okay in the end were the ones who cultivated or found a way to cultivate resilience. This is an incredibly difficult time for a lot of us, right? There's been a lot of frayed nerves, a lot of stress. A lot of people are still you know, hanging on, if not by a thread, then struggling in a way that maybe they weren't a couple of years ago. And it's really important, it's more important now than ever, I think, to cultivate resilience, to cultivate a sense of, of stability and, and finding a way to to keep yourself grounded during this uh, this crazy time. And I, I mean, I'm just also just thinking the, the remark you made, Aaron, about the you know personal life OKR of get funded before Brian has a family, you know, multiplies. Like Brian, I'm not, for you. I'm not very bright. Wait, let's stipulate that was a dumb idea. <laughs> but I think the thing is, like Brian, did it for you in that moment? Did it feel like Aaron really had your back as a co-founder yeah. to know that he was Absolutely. actively trying to support you in that way? Yeah, I, I think that was it was great, actually. I mean, I, that was one of the things that really built trust between us was feeling like we're aligned and able to move forward. I had founded a couple of companies prior where we, we were convinced that either we wanted to bootstrap or we wanted to delay a raise as, as long as possible. And I found those partnerships to be really fragile because there was nothing keeping people together. One person could just sort of walk away and that was that. And that was another component for me as well. And I, at every step along the journey, I actually thought that Aaron was great at being responsive and connecting along similar goals. We just felt aligned in a really helpful way. I love it. I love it. I wanted to talk quickly about the ideation process. And then I know Jerry and I have some deeper questions about just some of the the recent fundraising processes that has happened relatively uh, recently. But so the ideation process, I'm curious about the whole experience of which idea do you choose? How do you choose what not to do? And then how do you know when to commit and go all in? Because it sounds like, you know, for one side, Brian, there was a seed of an idea when Aaron got involved. And Aaron, it sounds like you have been an accelerator with contributing a ton of other additional ideas. And it sounds like the two of you are, are enhancing that every conversation. So how do you do it all? Which one do you choose? How do you choose what not to do? And then when do you commit? I will be happy to take that. So we interviewed well over 100 software leaders. And Brian and I talked about this early on. You can have all the ideas in the world, but nobody here is Steve Jobs. Even Steve Jobs wasn't Steve Jobs. He would customer test things just like everybody else should. And so it becomes, what are the ideas that customers are screaming at? What are the things that, that are going to ultimately be valuable to them? And look at every single thing that we build through their eyes. And is this going to you know, help them support a decision? Is this actually going to help them be better leaders? And so that becomes the rubric through everything. And you have to have enough of those in common so that you actually have conviction to actually go and build the thing. Because the other technique we were doing, and, and not everybody does it this way, this is kind of interesting, is that we have been, for, for Brian and I, it's easier for us as software engineers, ultimately, to build a feature and show it than it is to prototype it. It's funny, I have an account on Figma and I, I love the product, but I actually found it's actually easier for me to actually build the UI in React than Figma. Maybe I just need Figma training, but that was one kind of interesting aspect. So the best way to have a feature is build it, put it in front of a customer, see if it resonates, and ultimately see if they use it. And, and our design partner has been great in actually allowing us to measure how they actually do use some features or not. And we've actually made decisions in the past few months of not doing certain features based on lack of usage. So that's one of the controlling ways that we think about good product management in a startup. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are maybe two, there are two beliefs or insights that bring us back to center and keep us grounded in terms of what we want from a, a product development standpoint. One is that, well, at least as far as how Workspace thinks about the problem, one is that we think that the hard part about software isn't software, it's people. That's the hard part of software leadership. There is a, a ton of tools out there that 
really focus in on taking a metrics-driven approach to understanding your team, and they'll go ahead and scrape Git commits. And don't get me wrong, there's value in quantitative data. But to me, that's not the tricky part. The tricky part is, is the people side. And HR tools aren't really built to serve the needs of software leaders, people with uh, an operational role, people who are accountable to the business. Software is increasingly expensive. It's the most critical part of modern enterprises. It's difficult to estimate. It's difficult to build the right thing, right? Software, what we do is very hard. But for me, the, the hardest part of that or the, the most critical component of that is, is getting the people right. And so we wanted to start with a people-centered understanding of what it means to manage software teams. And the second thing was that we think of our competition fundamentally as a spreadsheet rather than some other arbitrary tool out there. We think that the most important thing we have to do is help people add value to what they're doing by getting them out of ad hoc tooling into something that's more suited for what, what we think leaders need in this era. And so we filter sort of everything we look at through the, the frame of those two things. Can we stay human-centered? And do we think that this is a considerable value add over simply shoving it into a cell somewhere and, and crossing your fingers? So I don't know. That's pretty high-level advice. I don't know I don't know how applicable it is. But I, I do think it's important to have some fundamentals that you, you keep coming back to. I think Aaron named a third one, right? Which is that, and this is Again, advice that's difficult to, to generalize, and your mileage may vary here, but we have found for ourselves that if you focus really tightly on building fast feedback loops, which is, again, difficult to do over the long term, then if your feedback loops are sufficiently fast, you can prototype something in real software as quick or quicker than you might be able to do in some sort of prototyping tool, especially once you take into account the the cycle it takes for someone to conceptualize it and sketch it out and then bring it to a team and then they say yes or no, right? I mean, the other thing with the startup, though, is that there's no one there's no one to delegate to, right? Like, there's no like, <laughs> oh, I'll wait for a designer to come up with this. What are you going to do, not build software? Like, sure, yes, there are in lean startup terms plenty of ways of conceptualizing this as a run-up to actually building the thing. But look, if you know how to write code and you got some code in front of you, why not go for it is sort of my, my hot take there. And we've been fortunate there so far and it will not last forever because nothing ever does, right? Software, software becomes brittle. It becomes difficult to change over time. You have to really fight to keep it limber. We're not yet at the, the crisis inflection point there. And that's one of the tough things about startups as well, right? Is that when you are building software really rapidly, not understanding whether you've met your needs yet, you are probably not reinforcing every aspect of it as you go. And so there's a process of returning back later and, and shoring it up or sort of removing the scaffolding as you build up the brick wall or whatever. I'm not sure, quite sure what the right analogy is here. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I wanted to dive into fundraising a little bit and spend a little bit of time talking about this. I'm going to start with a broad question and we're going to dive down a, a couple different a couple different areas. But the, the broad question is your experience, you just wrapped up your experience and this is the first time fundraising for, for Workspace. What'd you learn from the experience or, or what worked or what didn't in your observation just coming right off of being really focused on this? I started out watching a lot of what everybody does when they decide they're going to learn how to do this. You, you watch a bunch of videos from like Y Combinator and everybody else that kind of gives advice out there. 
And a lot of it, you're going to get a lot of advice about how to fundraise. And so take this with a, with a grain of salt. But one of the bits of advice some people say is that you should cold email everybody. And I think that might work for some people. We got zero responses from cold emailing. Zero. And maybe that's just the nature of our idea where it's a little bit more niche than maybe a general consumer startup product where maybe it's going to be a little bit different. But we ultimately just had to work our network, work through people that you know we knew that trusted us. We had an advantage a little bit in the sense that our mutual background at ThoughtWorks, where I don't know if everybody in the audience is going to know what ThoughtWorks is, but they're a you know, good-sized consultancy that tends mm-hmm. to have a lot of people that when they leave, they become software leaders in the industry. They become directors of engineering, VPEs, so forth. And if you don't become one of those, you become a, well, we have a number of startup founders in our network. And so we were able to get some good advice from people that have been through it, hence the whole podcast series, I imagine, why you're doing this. But as well, I think it was really important for us to have people that we trusted that were also there that could give us the advice that we didn't want to hear. I remember one person in particular saw our slide deck and said, literally, I wouldn't even give you a reference to somebody with this slide deck. It was so bad. <laughs> tough to hear, right? You know, very, very tough to hear. But was very, very valuable. I mean, it really honed our message and it was precisely the thing we needed to hear to actually make our, our pitch a lot better. I actually I didn't find it that tough to hear. I, I always presumptively assume that whatever I'm doing is awful. So to hear someone reflect it back, I'm like, yes, it is terrible. Tell us more. Give us the worst. I really I love that actually. <laughs> Hence where, why I'm always the optimistic one and, and Brian always drags me back to reality. So yeah, you were so it. you were so wounded by it. I'm like, yeah, it's a terrible deck. <laughs> So yeah, so we worked through our network, which I don't know that that's actionable. I mean, like build a network isn't something that you can just, oh, okay, I built a network. Good. I'll just go do that. That was pre-existing. So we had an advantage there as well. I mean, I think if you don't, I think it's really important that you get to know some other founders and understand, especially in the similar kind of, I'll call it market you are. Like if we talk to founders that were primarily doing B2C, I'm pretty sure most of the advice would be terrible because it just isn't the same kind of market. So talking to other, for our case, you know, B2B SaaS uh, startup founders was really valuable. And we got some decent advice, some really good advice, and really kind of picking which ones are relevant to you is actually kind of the art of, of this. I feel like my follow-up question is how do you do that? Because I think one, I know one thing we've talked about beforehand was, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth and, you know, everyone's got advice or they're researching advice yeah. for fundraising until they get into it. So like, how do you screen the advice to figure out what's relevant to you and what's not? So, you know, I mentioned a little bit before, are they in a similar vertical? Have they been successful? How recent is it? You know, one of the key things is you'll see a lot of advice out there that's based on how one might fundraise 10 years ago or even five years ago. And it's, I think it's different in every year. And I think it's still the same way now. There's a lot of people that are funding companies right now. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I always kind of joke like the funding environment is so hot that even we got funded. It's a joke, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the same time, I I like to think about this as just understand that it's from that time, right? And you be very careful about that kind of advice. That's pretty much all I have uh, on that one. I think, Brian, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I think partially answer Chris. I mean, I think after most of these calls, we'd always do a debrief, right? Aaron and I would hop on a call and say, like, how do you think that went? You know, what worked well? What didn't work well? We always did a bit of an after action report. And I think we ended up tweaking the slide deck a little bit after each time, which like, look, may not be the may not be the thing that, that you're supposed to. I think you hear different opinions about over indexing that. The thing that struck me when we were working together early on, Aaron, on the deck, actually, is that you, I think your attitude in the deck was like, eh, like you, you had worked at, you know, ThoughtWorks for a long time. And I like your attitude towards slide decks sort of verges on contempt. You're like, whatever, we'll bang it out and then after it'll be fine. Uh, and I was like, no, 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 no. We're going to spend several evenings just talking about like the tagline on the first slide. And you're like, this seems like too much time. And so I, I think that's maybe the, the difference in our approaches is right. I, I really wanted to go 
pixel perfect on some of the stuff and you really wanted to ship it. And I think both of those, that's a really valuable dynamic too. But that was part of it was just the continual iteration process. We also both come from a background where it was forced into us as part of, at least for, for me at ThoughtWorks as part of my software education training, iterate, 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 right? Don't bake a thing and then hope. Start with something dumb and then iterate your way on up from there, right? And I think that's that was as true for a fundraising as anything. After every conversation, we reflected, we tried to figure out what we thought was resonating or not, and then we moved on from there. I, I think I would say we're both, you know, we, we, we work in tech backgrounds. We have some connections into the, the VC side, but neither of us had raised before and they were super deep, right? And so the, it was tough. I found it tough to understand, build a mental model of the motivations and sort of work through that, right? And what other stuff that worked, we, we thought it was really valuable to have working software, especially at this stage. It was important that we'd be able to build the vision. The hard part actually was, I, I keep on saying the hard part. I suppose that means that a lot of them are hard, but build, building the vision, right? When I think back to my points of highest frustration in that journey, it's we have a vision in our heads. We know what we want to achieve. We know that the audience is out there because we've talked to all these people. How do we translate that vision into something that folks with this set of motivation will understand? and vibe with and, and find compelling enough to sort of go with us on, on the journey. And, and again, I feel very fortunate that we, we did, we found great partners eventually. But, it, you know, that wasn't every conversation, right? Not everyone would, like, the worst conversation was we were talking to a, a, a VC that, that nominally specializes in SaaS and we were running them through the, the system and they were asking, isn't this HR's job to figure out who goes on what team? And it was, um, I don't know, if you've ever, if you've ever helped staff a team in software, you'll understand that like this is a thing that is vital to building software. Software is a team sport. Software requires the coordination and, and sort of the magical alchemy of people coming from an extraordinary sort of backgrounds and with a different set of skills to achieve meaningful things. And it's not HR's job to pull that together. It's the job of the people within the organization on the team, leading the team to sort of figure out how to make that magic work. And that's the magic that we want to try to capture and enhance, right? We want to try to work with people who want to get that right. Very interested with uh, what Brian just mentioned, how you have a vision in your mind, you know, people like it, they've been interviewing other people, but how do you translate that to a different audience with maybe a different set of motivation so that they can perceive what you want to convey? What kind of advice do you have for other founders that are about to do that? I think the set of, to be able to communicate, the, have people understand what it is that you're building, you have to kind of really get them into the mind of your customer. And help them understand. Because here's the thing that a lot of people think VCs know everything about everything. And it turns out VCs know very little about your problem. In fact, you know your problem a hundred times better than any VC is ever going to. A VC is going to be looking at a startup that looks like ours and then one that's completely different in the same half an hour, right? So you have to do a good job of educating them of why this is a problem, why this is the biggest problem, why you should build a billion-dollar company to solve it. And you have to not only have the conviction, but you have to have the really, really nail the why. Like, why does Orspace exist? It exists because there is an unmet need in the industry that software leaders actually have to do most of the planning around who goes on what team. So get back to Brian's example, there are a lot of folks that aren't in the industry that to them, that's like, really? That's how it works? Tell me more. That's a really fascinating thing. And so being able to convert that to thinking about, well, imagine, I know Brian hates sports analogies, but I'll use one anyway. Would you use HR to staff the Chicago Bulls? No, you would not. You would, you, you would. I have no idea. How do you? <laughs> I had to gas. I gasped. I was like, oh, that would be a horrible team. You, you, you just wouldn't, right? It's just, it, nobody would ever think about that, right? And again, maybe it's a dumb analogy, maybe it's not. But like, you have to kind of figure out a way to communicate either by analogy or some other kind of way to help people understand your problem. And I think to some folks, that analogy might work. But yeah, that's my answer to that question. Like you, you have to figure out a way to 
help them understand it in very plain terms and, and very efficiently. I would sort of characterize it almost like a, I hate to say the word sales process, right? But like you are, you are trying to find a framework for conveying why the thing that you care about matters to someone else, right? In the simplest or the most general terms. And so as part of that process, I mean, I find it very valuable to be honest. To me, a core principle here is I, I don't do bombast really. Maybe this is like an East Coast versus West Coast thing or something. Also, like I'd been coming out of working for WeWork and it had a little much of the of the uh, exaggeration, I suppose. But it was really important to me that we be upfront and clear and direct in, in how we planned on communicating what we were doing. But that certainly does not preclude emphasizing the pieces that we think are most relevant or compelling to the audience that you're working with. And that's not just pitching to VCs, that's giving a good talk or trying to build good marketing or, or working in, in sales or something. The important thing for me to remember is that most people don't care all that much. Like you are selling something that is of interest, but only if it fits through the lens that they're using to, to understand what they're doing. We got a lot of well, well, it's not an industry that we're into, or we have a similar portfolio company or whatever. And I, I try to take all that stuff on face value, right? Through that lens of they are trying to apply a set of constraints to a meaningful problem. If you're not compelling enough, there's some bar that you're failing to exceed, or maybe simply that on face value, there's something about the business that falls out of those parameters, right? So fair enough, fun conversation. Thanks for your time. Try again, right? Just keep on iterating. I, I do think found or, or VCs properly want to see if you can sell the idea. <laughs> because you're going to have to sell it to them before you can sell it to any customer or anybody else that's uh, going to be out in the world and give you money for your product. The the framework you laid out, Brian, makes me think that it was a good way to become resilient to the nose of taking those things for face value. I think one of the things you mentioned very early on in our conversation was a lot of folks may not get back to you in a long time, or you may get initial interest and they may ghost you. And so I was wondering if you had any remarks on how to get past that, like probably the emotional experience of like, why are they ignoring me? It's been a long time. And like, I guess emotionally, how do you get past that? And then tactically, what's the next move to keep moving forward? I don't know. I'll take a quick stab at this and then pass it to you, Aaron. The, I think the mistake I made in retrospect was to rely too much on the person getting back to me that they would eventually get back to me. And instead, what I should have done is not over-indexed on that particular individual and just kept going, right? We had a really positive, strong hit from someone in our professional network early on that got us both excited. And then after a couple conversations, just nothing. And uh, that that put us in the back foot for a little while. In retrospect, what I should have just said is until it's a yes, it's not a yes. Don't take it at face value. Just keep on having those conversations, keep on moving forward. And sorry, with that, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I think that happened in our fundraising process was we initially got our first conversation with Bloomberg Beta through one colleague who had made some, you know, kind of an introduction through a mutual. We had that conversation, heard very little for about seven weeks, had another conversation with somebody else who also happened to know the same partner at Bloomberg Beta. <laughs> and so we heard about it from a second person. So my very concrete advice is if you can figure out a way to get to a VC through two different parts of your network, that might be a way to get there. I don't know. It worked for us. So obviously it's going to work for everybody else, right? No, I don't know if it'll work for everybody else, but it, it does kind of provide, sometimes they need that social proof or they need to kind of see it a couple of times. And if they were kind of warm to the idea, but not like, I'm going to do this and they hear it from somebody else. That can be a winning formula to actually get the thing done. I can imagine getting a message from two completely disparate sources saying, hey, you should check this out. And I'd be like, yeah, I actually should definitely check that out. I think that's great. And then I aspect I want to throw out there is that it's possible that among other investors overall, they're just going to be a, a big portion of them just doesn't care or doesn't know about, a passion about your, your product. That's probably applies to every company. So it's totally okay if you're just 
go past those people and find the right ones, the ones that they're really interested in your product. So that's probably, I'm not sure, that's my perspective, but I have to hear your perspective on that as well and see whether that's the case. I think, I, I think I'd, I'd give us mixed marks in that regard. Like, I think one thing that I was really passionately committed to the early on is that we should be methodical about this, right? Let's go find every VC that seems relevant to the segment that we're targeting in the industry and go reach out to them directly. And to Aaron's point earlier, we, we did a little bit of that, but I don't know that in the end, a lot of that cold outreach got us where we needed to go. Mostly it was activating one or two key people who got it and got excited about the, the idea and then them reaching out to their network and saying, hey, you should, you should check this out, I think. So it, was, it, it came in through that vector. And I think the person who was most important to us actually wasn't in either of our networks to begin with. We, we met him as part of the journey and, and uh, it was Timothy Chen, I, in my mind. We spent a ton of time with him just walking him through it and talking through the parameters. And like at the end of it, he was like, I'm in your camp. Let me know how I can help. And from that, he was from that point forward, he was super helpful. And that's been true, I think, of a lot of our our angels. Is like once once someone is conceptually or emotionally committed, they tend to be really helpful. Or at least we, I feel extremely fortunate in that that's been our journey so far. Yeah. So the other thing I think that was meaningful for us was that we we are likewise very fortunate in that the software that we're targeting is geared towards software leaders and a lot of software leaders who've had uh, remunerative careers do angel investing. And so occasionally, simply as part of talking through our networks, we'd pop into someone who's like, I see it, I totally get it. Are you interested in, in taking on an investor? So I would say angel was comparatively pretty straightforward for us. It was institutional investment and bridging the gap between those two things that was more tricky. I think the interesting conflicting insights that a lot of people can get at this early stage is pitch deck versus product, where to spend time, how to leverage that. And I know that you both have had some pretty interesting experiences with this. And so I was wondering if you talk about like leading with the product or leading with the pitch deck, what that was like and the insights you got from that. This is where having, and I would consider Brian and I both technical co-founders, right? You know, we both have a deep technical background and there, there's a certain advantage to that. I can't even imagine what it would be like to not have at least one of you be that way. But I, I definitely was noticing the ears perk up much more. I mean, people wanted to see the product. You know, we'd say, hey, should we walk through the deck or should we show you the product? Every single time, without exception, it was show me the product that, care, that matters much more. And if you can do that, you're going to be in a way better place. And so, I mean, to me, it's not even a controversial thing. People would much rather see the thing than look at yet another pitch deck from yet another you know, couple of people that haven't committed enough to build the product in the first place. And I think to, to a certain degree, having a product is a mark of every VC is going to ask, are these co-founders committed to this idea? Are they really, really going to do it? Building a product, because it is way harder than building a pitch deck, is is a, a good testament to that commitment. And so I think, if you can build a product, go build it. Please go build it. That will, I think, give you much more success than on average than just a deck. I mean, the, the other thing that we got out of that, Aaron, is we were able to say, here's a set of companies who are trying the software. And I, I don't want to be too rosy about this. It was relatively easy to hit up a friend and say, hey, friend who works at a company, will you try my software? It's difficult to turn that person into a long-term user, right? And so that's part of the journey of market discoveries, figuring out, okay, Who's itchy you're really scratching? What makes them so excited about it? And how can you push on from there? And the valuable thing for us was to be able to go back as part of the pitch deck and say, look, we know it's early. We know while we have a product, it's not all the way there yet. But here's five or six companies you've heard of who are, are signed in, who have accounts, who are poking around in the thing, who have told us that they would use it once it's in a, a more developed state, right? And I, I think that was the second really valuable part of having a product. And people obviously do this with in lean 
startup terms as well. I was talking with another founder who like, he's revenue positive from day one because he went through the extra bootstrap step of saying, give me some money and I will go build it. And that, that was his way of validating that it was something that was truly necessary, which I think is tremendous, right? I, I, I envy that approach deeply. I think that there's a strong argument there for revenue sooner rather than later. And, and so super kudos to him. And that wasn't quite where we landed because we'd gone back and forth on when's the right time to open it up to pricing. And then like, there's a whole set of like strategic questions around revenue. Nonetheless, I think it's at least for a, an enterprise SaaS product, right? You got to be able to tell someone, we think that there are real companies out there who would use this thing. And we know that because they've, they've said so. They've said they would pay us money someday. Fantastic. Well, before we get into rapid fire, I think one of the questions, this is what we've been kind of bumping into as a team. There's like the demand to fundraise and build your product at the same time. How do you both balance that? Like, how do you balance the time for still building your product in the early stage to doing the fundraising roadshow? We were able, I don't know, Aaron, we were able to keep momentum pretty high early on, but I think we hit a tipping point where thankfully we felt like we'd activated a lot of interest. And so we were having a lot of these conversations. For me personally, I found it difficult to focus on product building while that was going on. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, I was having, I mean, spending, like, literally, I think at one point, we're having three or four calls a day. And every call, you do a debrief, and that's your day, right? You don't write any code on those days. And, and those were more of those days than not. So the next thing is the, the dynamics of VC, at least the way it feels like to me, is once one person has interest, it seems like a whole bunch of other people will suddenly have interest. I don't know if that's universal, but I've been told there is a little bit of a FOMO aspect that happens in VC world where once the rumor gets out, suddenly people want to kind of follow in. And so it kind of worked out pretty well for us. We were able to get most of the you know hard parts of it done in a month. It was very intense. And then we got our first term sheet and we're like, yeah, we got a term sheet. And then Oh my God, we got to negotiate a term sheet. And that became its own <laughs> thing. Like, yeah. do we do give up a board seat or not? How much funding do we go for? And those all really, really um, exciting. But yeah. And even even once we closed it, it raised a new question, which is how are we going to deploy this new capital in an effective way? So we we were very fortunate to pick up a couple of strong engineers early on, right? We were able to start growing out our teams, which is wonderful. But then there's the whole process of, oh shoot, now you're a real company. You gotta train people up. You gotta, you gotta onboard them to this god-awful rickety code base and like hope they don't run screaming for the hills during the process of building the company out i wish i could paint a rosier picture here but maybe it's comfort for some folks out there going through a similar thing it really really clobbered our momentum altogether and it it feels like only now we're getting back into the flow where everyone feels comfortable with the the business problem and the code base and engaged with the problem and and moving forward so it did lead us through a period where we probably weren't as responsive in in product building as we could have been and i I think it hurt us a little bit some of our relationships with folks would use the software early on and so our mission now is to use what we've been given to to build that back up again and move towards a high stability platform rather than the uh, arrangement of plywood and duct tape that we were starting with I think it's really interesting just the the level of juggling that both of you illustrated between like the important versus urgent matrix of these new challenges you kind of have to learn once they come up. And it's like designing the org, building out the team, onboarding people. You got to figure out how to get to that stage first by fundraising. To get to fundraising, you got to have a product. So it's like these, there's this really interesting process laid out there. The, the anecdote I'll give you is this out feels congratulations on finishing the 10K. Go suit up from the marathon. It starts in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's, yeah, yeah. A, that's a perfect analogy. Oh my gosh. We've got a couple rapid fire questions for you both. What are you both reading or listening to right now? 
So I read literally almost like once every two months, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is a book Brian recommended I read. And uh, what, the good thing about that is it, I would say insisted, I think, might be closer to the, <laughs> closer to the, the yes. phrase. Yes, you, you shall read this and this will make you uh, a good leader of a startup, which I had never done before, right? And, and yeah, I mean, th- that is... It's a classic book, I guess now, but it prepares you a little bit for what will be the emotional ride. There will be deep disappointments. There will be points at which you are terrified of what you're doing. Am I doing this? You know, you're you're you now have a co-founder. At least you're not alone in doing it. But yeah, it is. It can be terrifying. So that's one. Another one that you know, you know I think is really uh, has been useful for me was Andy Grove's book, High Output Management. It, it, that's definitely a classic. But it was in that book, and I remember reading one passage out of it, which was. Most leaders spend 80% of their time gathering data and 20% of their time actually doing leadership. And not only did that book have that, but it was also kind of a manual for how we're writing org space, which is how do we help leaders spend less time gathering data and more time doing leadership, right? You know, so in a lot of ways, there, there's some parts of that book that are almost like a guidebook on what we need to build so you can be more effective, because that's really what we're about is helping leaders be more effective, just like y'all are. Yeah, I think a good chunk of our time is in reconnecting with the, the fundamentals, right? And going back to going back to, to to good leadership books out there. So dynamic reteaming is a text from a few years ago. Heidi Helfen. We took a ton of inspiration. I, I had known it as an industry term. Uh, I'd run into it in, in the circles I was running through, but never actually went back and, and read the original text. And so heartily recommend that to folks out there who are looking to sort of build a more dynamic organization and help people move with more fluidity throughout throughout the org, trying to bring brains closer to business problems faster. And then what else? I don't know. I don't listen or I don't consume a ton of like engineering management context or engineering management content. Usually I'm forcing myself to read a physical book in the background just as a way of clearing out my brain every night. And that's helped a little bit with sleep and stress. And that's good. It's going to sound terribly cliche, but I'm rereading The Lord of the Rings, which I I don't think I've read since I was 14 or something. But you know, it's 800,000 pages long, and it's very good at finding ways to occupy your time. For technical stuff that's sort of lightweight, Pat Kwa has a newsletter called Level Up that I'm a big fan of. It's always incisive. It's always pretty focused content, right? It's not a longer difficult read, but something interesting in your inbox every day, which I really appreciate. I like the Ezra Klein show. It's my podcast I'm grooving on these days. The Daily is a pretty good standby. My wife works at the New York Times, and and so I'm required to consume New York Times branded content as part of our uh, relationship. I read the morning newsletter from the New York Times every morning. So um, we can throw that out there. Okay, next rapid fire question. Are there any other founder resources that you found to be most helpful? I was going to say it's a relationship business. The idea that how references happen, it's all back channel. So all your failures, all your successes, people are going to find out about it when they do check you out and go through due diligence. So yeah, it is maintaining those relationships and making sure you're adding value as much as you're taking, if not adding far more value than you're taking. I mean, that to me is one of the most important things. Yeah. And and the nice thing about founders, right, is that, I, I mean, personally, like I will say up front that I get intimidated by speaking to founders, especially ones who seem to have done really well, who have had spectacular success along the journey. I, I really struggle with that. But by and large, when I've made the effort, I've found that everyone remembers what it's like to go through those early stages, right? Everyone understands what a, a difficult and precious thing uh, a nascent idea is. And, and so if you approach folks with an open spirit, a lot of them are very generous with their time. So I'd encourage you to explore your networks through that lens and just to pay it forward in this moment. If there's anything that we can be of assistance, if you're finding yourself anxious or stressed or in need of advice in that moment, please reach out to Aaron and myself and we'd be happy to, to hop on a call and give us what, <laughs> what little advice we have along the journey. 
Uh, such an important perspective to to share there in that because I think it's such a special moment that the founder tribe is so specific. And so there's only yeah. a few amount of people who really understand like the vulnerability of having that idea and really championing that. So I think that's a really special call out. So the last rapid fire question one and then we got a big grand finale. So Brian, you mentioned reading Lord of the Rings. I was going to ask, how do you diffuse stress? So I'd love to hear, is it reading Lord of the Rings? Are there other things that you both rely on? Lord of the Rings does not help me much with stress, alas. I started picking up mindfulness and meditation practices a couple of years ago when things got rough at my prior employer and, and during the, the pandemic or at the, the start and the height of it. I don't claim uh, particular expertise here. I am not myself an extraordinarily spiritual person by any means, but I found that taking time for myself for introspection and reflection has been hugely valuable. Finding a framework of acceptance, and also, which is not to say that I'm flawless in this or or always as patient as I should be or, or whatever, right? My flaws are many, but I, I found that taking time for mindfulness and building a, a framework of acceptance around what I'm doing has been very valuable for me personally and good for my good for my mental health. I love having kids, right? I love being a dad. That's good for my mental health too. So breaking during the day, going and playing with my daughter, like it's tough to get myself out of coding mode, but that's a good path forward. The baby yeah. can't really, he's not really interactive yet. He's sort of occasionally you can get him to smile so that, you know, if I can, if I can manage to pull that off during a lunch break, that's a win, but not, that's not a guaranteed outcome. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's, I'm an avid gamer. I have my uh, org space uh, NBA 2K basketball team that I play sometimes, which is super fun. And it, it's officially engaging, like a lot of video games are to get your, like you're in that problem when you're working on it. You're not in the kind of day-to-day problem of work, but also just at some point you kind of have to realize you're not going to control everything. At some point you got to realize that there's a lot of things that are going to happen outside your control and you have to kind of budget what you care about to a much more limited set of things that are the things that matter and like literally write down an inventory of is this thing that's bothering me in my life and i struggle with this i mean i'm somebody that used to go on the internet and argue with people because they're wrong <laughs> and I, I you know i've had to like, stop doing that in your defense they were wrong and they were on the internet what, what else could yeah you do? exactly i mean you know what else are you gonna do with your time right you know but you were right there <laughs> Yeah, you have to kind of stop doing that. They were asking for it. No, I certainly have been. Awesome. We've, we have one final question we want to ask you both to wrap this all up. I think what's so special is you both have shared this journey together and you shared the story with us. When you're reflecting on the, the journey so far, what have you appreciated or valued about working with each other? Yeah, I really appreciate the way not only Brian's amazing design skills in terms of just really caring about the details in a way that I'm just not as good as him. And I'm getting better, I hope, but it's been really inspirational to see just what, like you, you use org space and it doesn't feel like something that's half-baked, even if behind the scenes there's things that we're trying to fix and whatnot before we launch. But that part of it, and just from a, as a friend, he's somebody that is very much, and, and co-founders, you, you probably should be friends at some point, that kind of helps. But you know, kind of the way he really thinks about what is the impact of his words on the people that you know work with him, but the way he's able to, want to be better all the time. I think the thing I really appreciate as well is just, you, you know, it's somebody that matches, it's complimentary to me because I'm, I'm, I'm always like this idea and that idea. And I've never, like he says the word focus and I'm like immediately, yes, let's focus on this. And it's, I've done a lot of growing working with him and I've certainly very much appreciated that. And this has been additive in terms of, you know, the relationship. That was wonderful. The thing I like most about doing what we're doing is I, I get bored when I specialize. I like being able to do lots of different things, right? And I, I hold a bedrock belief skills and software are attainable, that even if you don't start life as a designer, that some amount of design is a skill that can be acquired or that some amount of 
you know, backend context is a skill that can be acquired or some amount of DevOps is a skill that can be acquired. The thing that, that I find really gratifying is bouncing back and forth between these things in service of building a product, right? Not building an API, not building uh, a, a fancy UI, not building a website, but building a product, building something that, that human beings will use and, and hopefully derive value from. I find Heinlein sort of prob- problematic as an individual, but I do appreciate his conception of sort of the, the competent human, right? That a human should be able to engage in a variety of different activities, uh, to lead and to be led, right? To change a diaper and to plan an invasion, everything on the spectrum, right? That that it is within your power to do it. And that's that's something that, that you know, Aaron and I talked about earlier, just to go back to the sort of, it's a startup, right? Who else is going to do it, right? We both were in leadership roles, Prior to this, you're used to delegating things to people. Who are you going to delegate to? I'm not going to do it. You go figure it out. And I, paradoxically, I find that really fun, actually. I really, it's it's an extraordinary privilege in many ways to to work in tech. We're a very privileged set of folks. And this is above and beyond that, to be able to pursue something that you feel passionately about and then to build a company and a culture around that, such as it is right now. Even when you're frustrated, certainly when I get frustrated and when I get wound up, I have to bring myself back to this is an extraordinary thing to be able to go do, an extraordinary way to spend your time and derive joy from that. I really resonate with the the final perspective of when you start to think about like, it is extraordinary to be doing what we're doing and to be reminded of that perspective when things get tough helps alleviate the tension a little bit. Aaron, Brian, thank you both so much for your time, for sharing your journeys together. And just for sharing the thoughtfulness around how you want to design and approach this problem. I know it's something that a lot of folks in our community have shared. And so we really appreciate that you both are taking that on to tackle that. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Patrick, for having us. Uh, this has been great. And we're always willing to share perspective, good or ill, <laughs> and, and advice. So like Brian said, we're easily reachable. You can find us, Aaron or Brian, at workspace.io. If you want advice, we're always here. If you want to learn more about OrgSpace and their platform or sign up for their beta, you can check them out at orgspace.io forward slash ELC. And we also have the link to that in our show notes as well. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders, and we'll see you next time.